Hi, this is Jay Todd Anderson, and you are listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. This way comes, or it could just be another edition of Filmically Perfect on 91.3 WYSO. <laughs> and I think we're rolling. Hey, I'm Nikki Dakota, your host. Glad to be here. As always, joined by the film guys individually. They are known as storyboard artists to the Cohen brothers and all the beautiful filmmakers. He is uh, our friend, J. Todd Anderson. J. Todd. Hello, Nikki Secret Dakota Ring. <laughs> nice to see you here. Also joining us in the studio, we have uh, made special arrangements from uh, the... George gets uh, good music. Doesn't he get the beautiful music? Cool music Indeed. Yeah. For such a beautiful person. He's the Nitrate He's Film Archivist for the Library of Congress. Also, uh, the man with the biggest film brain on the planet. He is George Williman. George, welcome. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> We are gathered together, as we do every Friday, to celebrate some of the finest films ever laid. Yes, and we're bringing you the new year with yet still another movie about losers. <laughs> <laughs> they say, you know, review what you know. Review the living you know. dead and other problems. <laughs> yeah. Boy, I'll tell you, this is Bride of Frankenstein, 1935, directed by James Whale, Universal Picture, Carl Emley Jr., executive producer. <laughs> Bride of Frankenstein. So Frankenstein wasn't enough. They realized that it needed to be a little bit more to the story. Oh, heck, this is a better movie than the first one, man. The first one's a great movie, and we understand that. It's on our list. But we feel a need to review this movie first because it's unlike most of the sequels that we uh, masticate and, and <laughs> rip to pieces. This is a movie that's actually better than the first. Yeah, Certainly it's, different. It's, you see James Whale really... Uh, blossoming, and that's a really loaded word to use with him, I think. But uh, blossoming as a filmmaker and growing, and and uh, just in the few years between Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, not only has he grown, but also the film industry, sound film especially, has yeah, grown. This movie was nominated, uh, and it actually got an Academy Award for Best Sound. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, Gilbert Curlin was the sound director, which is interesting because a good friend of mine name is named Peter Curlin. I don't know if there's any relationship, but he does all the Coen's movies. Uh, Peter Curlin has done all of them since Bond Civil. But this Gilbert Curlin here was, this is 1936. This is what it's, 1935 is the movie. And um, think about that, folks. Sound was only about six or seven years old. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, it was really still quite a bit of development to be done on it and and for this film to 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 have gotten to that stage where they award it, you know, one of those Academy Award thingies. Pretty impressive. <laughs> a little <laughs> or as we bobbles. call it, the bowling trophy. The yeah. bowling trophy. Well, before we get into uh, some of the action involved in this, I'm just going to say bizarre movie. Very entertaining, but definitely there's a strange, strange, odd edge Still to, to this it. day, it's just one of the strangest films ever made. I mean, we have a, a mindless, mindless barrage of cliches of the Frankenstein monster. But here we have what we all understand to be the original film monster, Boris Karloff, because this is what we kind of based Mary Shelley's character around was this image that Universal presented to us in the 1930s. 
And I think that that flat-headed guy that looks like Karloff is copyrighted by Universal, isn't it? I believe it is. Actually, I, probably, I think there's several different people that hold copyrights or patents or trademarks on that, uh, including Karloff's family, because it is his face, mostly. I mean, he didn't actually have a flat head, but um, uh, I think his visage is now protected. But at, at any rate, yes, that character is. And also the Lanchester's set uh, hairstyling um, trends for years to come <laughs> with this Bride of Frankenstein streak of silver look in the big hair. Oh, thing. you still see that evocation in different things. Uh, well, of course, most famously uh, in the past 20 some years in uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. At the oh, end, sure. the alien shows up with a white and White streaks in her hair, you know. Which speaks to rule number three, which brings up the rules, which has to do oh, with the rules. fact that this is not willy-nilly. We have a perfect move here. It has very stringent, and what are these criteria? Well, Bride of Frankenstein creates the world it exists in. And it wholly sustains that world. And regardless of changes in society, Bride of Frankenstein retains its meaning and entertainment value. And this movie is not put into any sort of numerical order or list. It stands on its own two feet. A great movie. It is perfect. So it's a sequel, but I, it's it's worth saying that they sort of go over. Uh, in case you did not see original Frankenstein, which seems unlikely for anyone right. that would have seen this movie, they sort of you know recap, recap before they move on. And it's an interesting device, <clears throat> excuse me, that they use in that rather than just starting at the end of Frankenstein, they go back and to that that weekend when Mary Shelley and her friends got together and wrote their scary stories. Now, if we reveal who this person is that is playing Mary Shelley, would that constitute a spoiler alert in this movie, George? I don't think so. Okay. Elsa Lanchester is Mary Shelley. And she's also... The bride. The bride. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Now, I know you're all grabbing on your chairs right now and saying things like, why did you have to tell me that and run it for me after all these years? <laughs> I was saving myself. No, anyway, <laughs> uh, the, at the beginning of at the beginning of Bride and Frankenstein, it's a stormy night in this in this, this always manor a house. Stormy night. Stormy night. It's always but a it's stormy not, night. But it's not. It's not at the time of the story. It's it, it's back in the eighteen twenties when yeah. she wrote the story. Doesn't it say even in the opening credits says as suggested by suggested Shelley by. in the eighteen nineteen or eighteen sixteen yeah. story? Amazing. And, and basically, Lord Byron is is complimenting her on her terrifying story, and he recaps it, and you see some scenes from the original Frankenstein of the monster being created and whatnot. Just in case you forgot about the first movie. Right. right. And um, and it ends with th- th- this opening, this prologue ends with her saying, well, there's m- basically more to the story. And then it fades into a continuation. It starts at the mill. There's a mill that the monster's trapped in at the end of Frankenstein that they burn to the ground. And the few townspeople there, and I think it's supposed to be the parents of the little girl that he accidentally drowns in the movie, and they are there the to make movie. sure that he is dead. He wants to see his charred bones right. before he... Yeah. What has he got another thing coming Well, yeah. it turns out that the monster isn't dead. The monster oh, fell through golly. the floor as it burned, and he's in really bad shape. He's got third-degree burns all over him, and his, his suit's kind of muffed up. But uh, he gets up and he starts killing a few people and he starts busy, busy wandering out into the countryside. Meanwhile, Frankenstein, played by the ever so effeminate Colin Clive, is uh, yeah. is getting married. Yeah, and then finally, this marriage is finally going through. They're going to get married. Yeah, after one full movie, they right. they finally figured it out. <laughs> but he's approached by this very very strange and heavily nostrilled doctor. <laughs> 
Dr. Pretorius, played by by the absolutely marvelous Ernest. He's a matter scientist. This is back in the days when they just didn't accept one mad scientist. You had to one-up. It's the baseball trick. You know, you put the little fingers over the hand. Right. right. One matter scientist than the other. This guy proves that Colin Clive is nothing but a lightweight when it comes to a mad scientist. Right. He wants all his ideas. Dr. Pretorius is not just a mad scientist. He's an insane scientist. (laughs) And he knows about what Frankenstein has done, and he wants to work with him to develop this farther and fix the problems that he encountered in the first And, of one. course, he deals with the problem how? By creating little tiny people in jars. <laughs> Which, by the way, is actually, to me, even more interesting than this odd, you know, cobbled together from kind of dead body like parts. These little guys in the jars. But still, that's not good. And he goes, I got an idea. Let's make a woman for him. Yeah. Get these little guys in They're jars. They're fully Too functioning. Fun. They're, you know, right. But that's not good enough. No, he's got to get this... This dope that's running around the countryside, scaring children, killing people. He's got to get this guy a wife. A woman. That's the way they're going to negotiate with his problems. Yeah. But the, the monster gets the monster gets caught by the town people again and gets locked up in the cellar. Which is very exciting. But he gets he gets loose. He gets himself loose. And he, he wanders out again into the countryside. And he's he's been shot at and he's bleeding. And and he stumb he hears music in the distance. And he comes to the small cottage in the woods where the music is playing, and and he go he's he comes to the door, and I think we have a little clip. He meets this old hermit who has lived by himself, blind hermit in the middle of the woods, middle of the woods, with no car, and he's had himself. no friends, and right. he mentions no that. friends. Yeah. So let's friends. let's hear a little piece out of this scene. Ah. Who is it? You're welcome, my friend, whoever you are. Who are you? I think you're a stranger to me. I cannot see you. I cannot see anything. You must please excuse me, but I'm blind. Come in, my poor friend. No one will hurt you here. If you're in trouble, perhaps I can help you. But you need not tell me about it if you don't want to. What's the matter? You're hurt, my poor friend. Come. Now, although through the years, I mean, uh, this this whole Frankenstein monster and the everything has become kind of a joke to us. <laughs> totally to, remind, yeah. to watch to watch Karloff at this moment is to see a really great actor at work because he can take this basically hulking dead monster and and give it the most wonderful <clears throat> excuse me wonderful humanity. It becomes very sympathetic. And throughout yeah. this film, I mean, it, by the end of this this scene with the hermit, the monster you understand and know that he's misunderstood. Right, and the monster is crying. And the audience is crying, too, because it's just heartbreaking. It was sad. I saw this as a child, and I think really the only scene that I very, very specifically remembered was that scene with the blind But you know, Mel Brooks, when he did Young Frankenstein, he really tried to knock this movie off. And Young Frankenstein is a good, good movie. But I tell you, this scene in this movie, he knocks off this scene with Gene Hackman in his movie. Mel Brooks does. But it's nothing compared to this scene. This, This scene here just just... 
paints the whole movie right in front of you, and instantly you're starting to feel kind of bad for this, this well, monster. I'm also th- I was thinking about the the Mel Brooks parody of this scene, and the reason I think that the parody of the scene, Young Frankenstein, is so good is because this scene is so good. This scene is so memorable that it is just inscribed on our brains now, so that when you see plus, the remake, you understand why it's funny because of the playing back. But and he forth he and pointed it out. Oh, this guy's blind. This guy can't hear. But in in this scene, it's it's taken as a real subtle kind of connotation, and they become friends in the forest. Right. And of course, the two hunters come in, just spoil everything. He's the killer, and just burn the place down. Of course, right. and, you know, because the monster has a real. He learns how to smoke. Smoke. Yeah, that was Good. so funny. Smoke. And which also, honestly, one of my favorite uh, all time actors and comedians is Phil Hartman. And 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 I did not understand. I remember he had the he did the Frankenstein character on Saturday Night Live mm-hmm. where he would say. Fire, good, and you know it was like friend. complete, yeah, friend, good, just a, a totally funny send up, and uh, it's interesting that you know the the hermit teaches the monster to speak, uh, and I, I've heard that Karloff was always a bit uneasy about the monster speaking. I I I mean he's it's his actor's prerequisite, of course, but I kind of disagree with him on that because I think the monster speaking adds a certain poignancy. But, you know, but but Karloff got the last word because in the next installment, in Son of Frankenstein, the monster once again cannot speak. Oh, but I think that, interesting. I think that after this movie is made, James Whale pushed this movie and its concept to such extreme limitations that they can never, ever bring that story or take it any farther because I think he pushed it to its absolute maximum potential this monster because this movie is all over the place Mm -hmm. it becomes opera it becomes uh social commentary believe it or not bride of frankenstein has a little bit of social commentary in it um uh the the breath of this movie just kind of meanders all over the place uh it's very nicely shot has wonderful music that breaks in the right places and uh, all of a sudden it's just not classically this monster this movie uh, brings us to what we all know now as cut to the monster because whale figured out you don't really need to show the monster getting up and getting out of bed brushing his teeth and then oh what's this there's somebody in my living room no <laughs> cut straight to the monster you know like they bring out elsa lanchester and she's standing up there she looks in that great scene where she's looking around like a oh animal. that is a great and where's scene. the well, cut to the monster he's coming down the hallway oh a woman <laughs> well also whale had kind of whale had kind of developed this in the original frankenstein of a way of kind of shocking the audience and he kind of uses it almost as a as a gimme back to the original film where he'll show the monster in the doorway like in the original one he, when the monster is first seen in frankenstein is absolutely brilliant yeah, it's the really monster comes in shot backwards he comes in with his back to the camera and then he turns and it's a long shot and then rather than moving in he cuts to a medium and cuts to a real close-up of the face and i can imagine 1931 that was a big face huge, back then, man. horrifying face on the screen and you know it just terrified people and in this movie keep in mind uh, when you do watch this movie on tv that this movie was a, a real square looking format when it was projected and it was very tall maybe 50 or 60 feet george uh, yeah and some of the biggest theaters sure but when james whale he was one of the first directors to understand how to work an aspect ratio. All he uses is tall images. They're all castles. They're all monsters. Everything's shot, you know, monster from a low angle. Everything's very vertical, and it fits very nicely upright. into the aspect ratio of 166, I do believe it Actually, is. this is 133 to 1. 
Uh, and all that spirit. just makes my eyes glaze over. But let me <laughs> remind you that we are listening. You're listening to Filmically Perfect. And we I'm are not. indeed talking about the perfect movie, 1935's sequel to Frankenstein. Is it fair? It's 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 straight up. Yeah. yeah. Sequel, yeah. The, the Bride oh, of Frankenstein. And how long again between Frankenstein and this Bride of Frankenstein? Uh, four years. Four years. So, but uh, then a lot of things that happen in movies. And um, here he is. He's taking this monster and he's giving it personality. You know, he's, the monster really does run crazy all the way through this movie. He's always running from one terrible situation to another where he's misunderstood, of course, and then they go get him. They always attack him. They always they string him up once. He gives gets away. He's just constantly on the run in this movie from one situation right after another. And then when they give him his wife, of course, she spurns, spurns him. him. Right. Wasn't that we, one sad? Thing we, one thing we should mention is how the wife comes to be is because, you know, this doc, crazy Dr. Pretorius is still wandering out loose there. And he's been spurned by Frankenstein and wants nothing to do with these experiments, blah, 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 nothing else. But the Dr. Pretorius comes across the monster hiding in a mausoleum. Right, because he enlists his help finds comfort, yeah. to get Frankenstein. So the monster goes and kidnaps Frankenstein's bride to sort of push the issue with Frankenstein that he should help Dr. Pretorius with this uh, new life project that he's got. And the project they decide on is to make a mate for the monster. Of all things. Why would they wouldn't yeah. concentrate on those little guys? I don't know, but yeah. And the Colin Cleave, he knows the weakness to Dr. Frankenstein is the fact that his hobby is dead people. So he preys on this hobby, you know. Wouldn't you like to go and, and build this woman? You know, and he can tell, oh, I don't want to do this, but I've just, I just can't help but want right, to build another monster. Right, because while well, Dr. Pretorius feels that his mistake was using an old brain, and in this case, Dr. Pretorius, through the technology that he's designed with the little people, has basically made a brain, a new human brain. Gee, that sounds like something they're working on today, doesn't it? <laughs> but anyways, so this this creature, although the body itself is going to be made from grave ends and parts and bits and whatnot, the brain is going to be a brand new, fresh brain. And what no man wouldn't like to have that in a woman, right? Fresh brain? <laughs> <laughs> Especially when she doesn't understand you, such as the monster. But of course, it didn't work on their first time out, you know, that's... He, he, yeah, the 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 <laughs> ending of this uh, this whole shebang yeah. here, uh, when the bride is unveiled, and it's a great scene. Oh, it's and such it's a, a marvelous scene. scene. And, and Waxman's score <laughs> swells up into this kind of eerie, kind of wedding march Dude. sounding. And music. that hair, that hair, that, that, that hair. She cuts this image that is indelible. It's what everybody remembers for generations. This is 1935, and there and she, is there is an allurous sexiness about her. Who knows? Even yeah. in Why her strange well, and she, hair. She, um, Could it be because her arms are bandaged all the way up? I don't know. And she <laughs> moves. Her, her her head movements are like a bird. She oh, kind yeah. of flips from side to side, which is interesting that, that James Whale wanted Brigitte Helm, who played Maria in Metropolis and also played the robot, to play the Brad Frankenstein, but she was not able to leave Germany the, the government would not let her come to the United States to do that, probably for fears that she wouldn't go back. Yeah. Uh, so they got Elsa <laughs> Lanchester instead. But definitely, he, you know, James Whale definitely must have shown Lanchester or at least uh, guided her in how to do these sort of metropolis kind of movements of the head. It's very striking. Yeah. You can't, you can't take your eyes off this little scene in the movie. And the best part is you're pulling for the old monster and he slides up beside her and he's going to put his arm around her. Oh, yeah, he her. takes her hand. And, yeah, it's very sweet. And, and she gentle. does the, the classic. Ah, yeah, ah, what a scream like a, she yeah, has. Yeah. And he goes, ah, 
he's really upset and crying. And is <laughs> well, my favorite thing is that she screamed, and this is the, this I've I've seen this I've seen this before. Uh, uh, she screams in terror of the monster, and then she turns around and she gives Frankenstein this look like, "What have you done?" Ah, uh, you know, yeah. So. I too have seen that before. <laughs> Usually when I don't get something done at home, but that's another story. Um, but the, the Man, monster Nikki looks at us like that sometimes too, George. Most of the time, like actually. That now. Whoa, what have we done? <laughs> but this is where it's great. I mean, they've stop built- looking at me like that. They've built this whole story up. The whole thing's falling apart now, and they're in this huge laboratory. And what does the monster do? He goes to this big incongruous lever. That the film was in color. I'm sure this lever was probably bright red. Yeah. yeah. Okay. There's this big lever on the wall that has not been and used. And it's labeled "Duce Machina." <laughs> and he reaches up and puts his arm over <laughs> by and accident. Doc- and then Doctor Pretorius goes, "No, not the lever." And you know what that lever does? It blows up the castle and falls all to the ground. But he lets. In his last, to show that the monster has attained quite a bit more humanity than he's given credit for, he lets Frankenstein and his wife or his bride leave. He goes, you know, you you live, go, and then you stay you to Doctor Pretorius. We belong dead, which is one of the, which is words to live by, and uh, <laughs> blows up the castle, and it all. And falls you know what down. that means, Doug? Doug was Thornton's are engineer here you know what that means doug we just giving away the ending (laughs) (laughs) so as the steps approach indeed that's all right but you know what i'm I'm willing to bet that most people even if they haven't seen the movie expected that to happen yeah you gotta wrap it up well yeah i mean (laughs) and from then on for the next till now that's the way it always happens this is the big lever you pull the big lever and the castle falls down you know it's we're talking about The Bride of Frankenstein on Filmically Perfect. And, you know, it definitely does uh, sustain uh, itself through time. I, I think it's interesting now, though, that the movie is is funny. I, I, I think it's... It's very funny, and it's very it's supposed to be funny. I mean, Okay, is it? Because I yes. wondered. But it's not an over-the-top comedy. You can't help but to, to laugh at this, this crazy monster because you kind of feel like you're in his position sometimes, you know, so you think they intended mis- to add the humor, that oh, it's yes, not just absolutely. because it seems quaint no. now. Now, I read that when James Whale was at university, I don't know this for a fact, but I had read that he was um, always doing what he wanted to do regardless, and he had a lot of success with the previous Frankenstein movie. And I read that some producer really twerked on him on this movie and gave him nothing but a hard time because he, of what we're talking about is that he didn't feel it should be funny. And he's a meddling producer. But my point in this is that you don't know who that producer is. Do you care? No. But James Whale is still one of the greatest directors of any a film uh, that has ever lived. And this movie is a testament to that because of what he took as a simple concept of a monster. And he put so much diversity into this story. Um, I can still watch this and see new stuff in this this movie. I mean, Frankenstein's a pretty good run through the forest, you know? It's a fun movie. Mm-hmm. But this one has a lot of stuff in it, and a lot of social ramifications from the 30s. Um, uh, he, he's a pretty brilliant director. He comes at it from all directions. Um, and he uses this monster as his metaphor for whatever he wants to do. Plus, if I add to that, just, just beautiful camera work. I mean, and the the creation sequence at the end is is just a wonderful uh, almost balletic piece 
with this music that Waxman wrote for it and the heartbeat going constantly through it. The heartbeat. Yeah, sort of when it's con- coming to life. Yeah. And, when, and the, the when the bride is coming. Yeah. Going Wonderful score. And, yeah. mm. I can still listen to that score and it'll stick with me, man. I'll be riding my bike or something and listen to it. And, and Universal obviously liked that score too because they recycled it a lot. Is that right? In the old, uh, some of the uh, Flash Gordon serials, you'll hear the <laughs> music being reused and reused. I think it, it sounds vaguely similar to Rodgers and Hammerstein, Valley High, is that what it was? There, there are some theme, the bride's theme sounds very much like Valley High. That's what it sounds Bally. like. And But this was before then. This was before that, yeah. yeah so Good 10 years. Yeah. Take that. <laughs> Rogers and Hammerstein family, you can't sue them. You know, Put that, funny, they had it first. Put yeah. that in your hat and smoke it. You know, as far as creating the, <laughs> <laughs> that really takes the pie for you, pal. <laughs> so let's talk about the rules and uh, creating the world. Certainly, certainly it does. Oh yes, it does. Uh, I, you can't tell where this is. Is this old Europe? I mean, he really stretches the lines on this one, right? And the the sets are just so distorted. <laughs> so All crazy. the walls are leaning crazy angles, and you know, vaulted ceilings, vaulted, crazy vaulted and, ceilings, and the rich people are really rich and they're tripping over themselves being rich and it's really hilarious and this whole beginning where mary shelley is sitting in her chair actually for years and years i saw this movie i never realized that was in the front of it overlooked mm-hmm. it completely but it's hey wait a minute is this mary shelley yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah and sustaining that well i have to say that there are a couple points like for example the fact that this man has created perfect in every way little four-inch people that, that live and breathe and walk around, but it's not satisfied with that. Instead, no, he wants to happy. make, you know, so I thought that was just sort of odd. And also, I found it so interesting that in each case, it has to be lightning, lightning, that, that you know, this natural Kinda electric like thing that the, brings the monster to life. Studio A, and we have to figure out what our next movie is, and the lightning strikes, <laughs> and we can figure this out at W. Well, we usually, See, we that, usually send Budinsky out with yeah, a lightning Budinsky. rod tied to his head. Stand right there. <laughs> But it seems so interesting. In a bucket of water. <laughs> Despite these sort of like odd, sort of like, hey, wait a minute, you're so interested in in the path of the of what? the of the narrative when that goes out and gets our no. movie. Or, oh, oh, you're talking about the movie now. Okay, that you're willing to to, well, I think, to so roll like with Doctor Doctor Pretorius's Little People is just sort of a, a kind of a nifty little sideshow attraction. It is. It's um, very much like it was a shell it, game, you know. Yeah, it's, it's a really like. great little piece, and and Universal had this amazing uh, special effects guy named John Fulton. And John Fulton did all the effects for this, for Frankenstein, pretty, pretty for the work Mummy, for 1935. For, I mean, jars. for the Invisible, yeah. the, the Invisible Man, he did the effects for, and he went on for years and years. So, I mean, this is just another example of John Fulton just pulling yet another rabbit out of his hat. I was particularly interested because when the little king got out and was going to go mess with the <laughs> with the, the other woman, and then he t- took out a pair of tongs, and, and I'm savvy enough to be like, oh, let's see how they do that, like because you knew it was going to mm-hmm. come in on a big crane, and it actually was very well done, really it's good, beautifully done, so. yeah. So, and then uh, rule three, without question, people still make at least visual reference to this uh, movie, particularly in the bride's, you know, whole getup. And uh, without oh, question. Oh, yeah, that image is there. And, it, you know, although the first movie, Boris Karloff, looked really scary as the original monster, this monster is far more interesting. Mm. He's probably the most interesting guy until Peter Boyle came along. Because <laughs> um, the rest of them were, were, were always safe monsters. They were just killers and... And they're dumb hits. But this guy is is learning. You know, he's he's getting a little smarter. And he, he actually becomes muscle for them. He pushes them around. And 
You know, he he extorts people and everything. This is, you know, Frankenstein monster. He's figured out how to like, you stay quiet. You're, you're my prisoner hostage. Yeah. You know, he doesn't say that, of course. but <laughs> Well, definitely movie good. Gentlemen, uh, we are approaching the end of another edition of Vimogly Perfect here on uh, your favorite radio station, 91.3 WYSO. Gentlemen, always a pleasure. We're going to tip our hand for next time around. No, no but I can tell you it's not going to be... Porky's Revenge. Okay. No. <laughs> J. Todd Anderson, storyboard artist to the Coen Brothers. And it's not t- down with love <laughs> For 20 years and counting. Yes, thank you. Uh, friend Mickey, to all the big stars Dakota, and friend to us. J. Todd Anderson, thanks. George Milliman, our man at the Library of Congress. Thank you for being here. As always, a pleasure. Food good, fire bad. Oh. Thank you for listening to an archival episode of Filmically Perfect. Please keep an ear out for new episodes of Filmically Perfect, coming very soon to iTunes and hosted on our website, www.perfectmovie.net. See you, please. <laughs> <laughs>